According to a recent Wall Street Journal article, more than 900,000 people quit jobs in state and local education last year, while private schools lost an additional 600,000 people. So what would make an overworked, underpaid teacher want to increase their workload and add to their schedules a monthly two-hour meeting after school? The answer? An Innovation Circles grant from Fund for Teachers. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Last year, Fund for Teachers offered a new opportunity specifically for teachers who already received a fellowship grant with up to $1,000, as opposed to the $5,000 or $10,000 for their original Fund for Teachers grant. Fellows were encouraged to think more theoretically about challenges witnessed in their classrooms and to pursue related experiential learning during the summer. The biggest differentiator, however, was the opportunity to process that learning with other fellows throughout the fall. Each teacher brought to monthly virtual meetings their independent summer research, loosely organized around the topics of social justice, art and design, accessibility, and social-emotional learning. Together, they workshopped how to leverage that research in the classroom. The program was so well-received that we committed to a second year of Innovation Circle grants, and the online application opened February the 10th. Today, we are learning from Marcy Addy, a high school literature teacher in Beaverton, Oregon, and a member of our first Innovation Circles grant cohort. In 2013, Marcy received a Fund for Teachers grant to follow Leonardo da Vinci's footsteps through the great Renaissance cities of Italy, researching the political context that informed his work to inspire a da Vinci engineering project. In 2019, she was awarded a second fellowship grant to research personal narratives of resistance during World War II across Europe to help students retain valuable historical information and teach the power of the individual. Most recently, however, she participated in our social-emotional learning innovation circle using a $1,000 grant to attend online workshops and develop skills in project-based learning. Then she walked students through the PBL process, helping them demonstrate authentic learning while maturing as learners, citizens. I reached out to Marcy to learn more about this experience and why she believes fellows owe it to themselves to also apply. I'm getting to speak today with Marcy Addy. She just returned home from work and is making time from from school and making time uh, to talk to us. But I like to start all of these conversations with the same question, and that is, why did you become a teacher? Well, it's the cheesiest answer I think it, you'll, you've heard, but it, I've just always wanted to be. Um, I think when I was in about the third grade, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. Um, school is a very safe place for me. I was good at school and I was really encouraged by all of my teachers and encouraged by all of my parents. And so it was somewhere that I felt very welcome. Um, I know that's a different story than a lot of my friends. They mostly became teachers because they struggled and they wanted to help like those kids. But for me, it was just like a really nice place to be. I liked the learning environment. I really admired my teachers. I, um, When I was in grad school, we had to do a lot of reflection on like who we want to be as a teacher. And so much of that is based on you know the amazing teachers that I had that were so encouraging. I also moved to Italy when I was 10 with my family and that gave me the travel bug. And so they just seemed to really line up nicely to be like, all right, I could travel if I wanted to in the summers, but also do something that I'm really passionate about. So it just seemed to all fit together. So I got my um, undergraduate degree in English literature and then my master's degree in education, secondary education. And I think you said uh, before we started that you taught for seven or eight years in New Mm -hmm. Orleans. 
Yeah, in Baton Rouge. Yeah, I taught for eight years um, at a private school there. A lot of the South, one big difference I've noticed, I live in Oregon now, is there's so many private schools in the South. And that's where I met my husband. He was an English and French teacher. Now you're in Oregon and you're teaching at Southridge High School? That's right. Yeah. So I'm in Beaverton, Oregon. I live in Portland and Beaverton's about, it's like a suburb of Portland. And are you teaching English literature? I'm certified in both English and social studies. So it kind of changes every year. So this year I have two government classes and three senior lit lit classes. Um, Last year I had only English. It was like ninth ninth and 11th. And then some years I have like creative writing and mythology and ninth grade and 12th grade. (laughs) So it all kind of changes. Well, that kind of explains your fellowships that you've done in the past. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're a two-time fellow, one in 2013 and one in 2019. So let's start yeah. with the one in back in Italy. Yeah. So that one, um, we did Italy and France together. And that actually I went on with my husband He's because he was also a teacher. Was he a fellow yeah. as well? Mm-hmm. Yep. He went with me. Yeah. So we did a team fellowship that year. One issue we saw at the high school level, even at a private school, is that the students, when they, you know, saw any sort of obstacle, they really just stopped. You know, they like didn't know how to push through or you, you heard so much of the negative type of thinking, like, I can't do that. I'm not a writer or I'm not a math person or I'm not creative. Um, And we really wanted to get them out of that mindset of putting themselves in boxes or accepting labels that someone else might've put on them 10 years ago. Maybe they had a teacher that was like, you're not creative, you're an engineer, you know, something like that. Um, So we decided to follow Leonardo da Vinci's footsteps through Italy and France for this like creativity unit. So we wanted to be Leonardo da Vinci. He's known for being an artist, but he also created like ball bearings and armored tanks and, you know, amazing engineer. He would dig up corpses and uh, look at the human anatomy. I'm sure you've seen the Vitalian man. And so, you know, we wanted students to see that they don't have to put themselves into one single box. They can do um, all of these things that are kind of connected together. So that was amazing. And then in 2019, I went around to five different countries that all had a museum dedicated specifically to the resistance movement during World War II. You know, there's all kinds of museums about World War II, but it was the resistance movement that I wanted to focus on. Um, I was feeling a lot from my students about feeling helpless about social issues, political issues that they just felt like they didn't have any power. No, their voice didn't matter. Um, and so I wanted to um, find some stories for them to hear about people who are just totally ordinary people. It was inspired by a Spanish man named Juan Pujol Garcia. He was a poultry farmer and he had like very limited military experience except for the required military that um, all Spanish men did at the time. And Bain was neutral, but he wanted to be involved in World War II. He's like, what Nazi Germany is doing is unacceptable. He volunteered to be a spy for the British army. And they were like, "Mm, no, you're a poultry farmer. (laughs) And so he just did it anyway. And so he became a spy. He like infiltrated the Nazis and convinced them he was one of them and then told the Americans he had already done that. So they hired him and he is pretty much solely responsible for the success of D-Day because he fed missing information to the commanding troops of Nazi Germany. And they believed him and they have like these memos that are like, this man's information should be trusted. He told them that the fleets were going to be somewhere else. So they sent their fleets somewhere else. So there weren't so many fleets on the beaches at uh, D-Day. And so this poultry farmer from Spain, like he's the reason D-Day was successful. And I just think that's a beautiful story. And I wanted my students to hear more stories like that. How did you transfer that into the classroom? 
So, you know, at the museums, I learned about real people. And actually, I have to throw this in. Amsterdam was one of my stops. It has a museum there dedicated to it. And I was doing Airbnb because it's a lot of cheaper than hotels sometimes. But the unfortunate thing is they can get canceled with like no notice. So just a few weeks before my trip, this Airbnb that I had picked gets canceled. And so I'm like trying to find, you know, something reasonably priced. And so I find this little like studio. I go to check in. And so my host, his name is Hans. He, um, he's like, oh, what are you doing here? And I told him and he gave me this like really weird look. He was like, oh, okay. And then we talked a little bit more and he said, so where are you going? Um, and I told him about the resistance museum. He said, oh, well, you'll see my dad there. He was the head of the resistance in Amsterdam. There were four leaders. He was the only one that lived. The other three were executed. He got the highest level of knighthood. There's all these pictures of him with his medal. It was just like cr- the craziest coincidence. So I sat down with him, obviously, and like heard stories about his dad um, that he had heard growing up. His, he said his dad didn't share like a lot because he didn't love to talk about it. Um, but he had some really cool stories. And so I took all that and made like a Google site for my kids with like, here's, you know, here are these people's stories. And so they could navigate that. And then we also did a book club with like some uh, fiction books about the resistant movement, Girl in the Blue Coat, All of the Light of Canasee. Um, so they read, read the fiction and then, you know, we kind of looked at um, the themes for that. And then they navigated the nonfiction stories as well through a Google site that I made. So I'm, I'm jumping ahead to your Innovation yeah. Circle grant. And I'll preface this by saying last year, Fund for Teachers started a new program for fellows specifically, mm-hmm. um, a, a lower amount of money that is was available, a $1,000 grant, but it was to dive deeper into something individually and then workshop it collaboratively with other peers. It's kind of a mm-hmm. quick way to say that. And, and I want to get you to get more into that later. But what I found interesting, one of the things I found interesting based on your proposal is that you said most high school English teachers will tell you only about 20% of our students actually do the reading when we read a whole class novel. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is enough to say that we need to stop. Absolutely. So as a transition from those two very interesting fellowships to this different type of fellowship, this, in, this Innovation Circle grant, tell me why, why you decided to even apply for that grant, because the application was last spring mm-hmm. in the middle of the pandemic. Right. <laughs> and how did you decide to dedicate the time that it would take to research and craft and then submit a proposal. What did you see in your classroom that that warranted that type of an effort? Honestly, a lot of it was for me. You know, I was feeling, I don't know, burnout's not exactly the right word because it was so early in the pandemic, but just like chaotic and I needed focus. For a long time, I've been wanting to learn about project-based learning. I've like heard people talking about it, but I have no idea what it is. My district doesn't offer any training on it. So when I saw the information about it, I thought that would be like a really amazing thing for me personally to focus on and make me feel like I'm doing something very real for my students um, that I can come back next year and have something better for them, more options. Because you know, the only training I have is on very traditional assessments, like essays and presentations. And like, I've done podcasts before, but not well. (laughs) Um, So that kind of thing. So it really was for me to have some focus um, and give myself a goal so that my students could benefit from that. I loved your honesty when you said that you were the type of student that learned well in the factory type of setting. Exactly. And you sat in your desk and you memorized things and you Mm -hmm. repeated them and then you got an A. But that you said, you saw even in your own teaching that, mm-hmm. that you would, as, as much as you would, would want to 
adopt different types of methodologies that you would find yourself reverting back to the mindset and even the the action, the pedagogy of, of that type of teaching. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to move out of like the routine that you have and what you know, and you know, it, you don't know what you don't know, like teaching at the private school for eight years. That was what we did. I mean, it was just, you lectured for 50 minutes or, you know, you read a short story together and they answered questions for homework and they wrote an essay and it was all very, you know, traditional. And once I started teaching here in Oregon, I really appreciated that our district um, was pushing very hard things like classroom libraries, choice reading. And it really made me realize the deficits that I had from my own learning experiences, from my own lack of exposure to that. And so this was helping me move in the right direction, I think, um, to take it a little bit farther. You also said that social emotional learning was a new concept to you. Yeah. And kind of talk a little bit about that because you, you melded the two, both SEL and PBL together in a way that I would not have thought of. I've, you know, I've heard people using the term, you know, education loves acronyms. So I was like, SEL, what is that? And so that was about two years ago, I think that I first started hearing it. And as I was reading more about it, and um, it actually really was the Fund for Teachers site about the innovation grant that kind of helped me connect those two together, because it was briefly explaining what SEL is. And then I was reading about, you know, brief ideas of project-based learning. Um, and so, you know, for my students coming back from, from quarantine, we were out for a full year. We were remote from, you know, March 2020 until about March or really April of 2021. And then we came back in a weird hybrid thing for fourth quarter last year. So this year was their first year back for some of the kids for like a year and a half. Um, and so they were anxious. Um, I also taught summer school. And so I had some conversations with students about what their anxieties were uh, about coming back this year. And socially, it was their biggest anxiety. It had very little to do with academics. They were worried about interacting with people. They just wanted to have their mask on and have their headphones in and have their hood up and no one noticed them. You know, they were feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And project-based learning really requires that they work together, that they work as teams. They can do some of the stuff individually. There's a lot of that, but communication is the biggest part of that. And that's part of SEL, the social emotional learning. That's a big part of the, the social aspect that they need to learn how to interact together in a healthy way, know how to take on a leadership position, know when to step back, um, take ownership over their learning. A big part of PBL is that you, you do very little teaching, honestly. Um, it's a lot of front loading and helping them figure out what they need to learn and how they need to learn it. And then they do that. They do that learning on their own. And so emotionally feeling responsible made them take ownership of that and feel better about themselves because they saw that they could do it. So it built some confidence in students who were, um, I've taught some of these students in the past as freshmen or juniors, and I've seen them struggle. And some of those students who struggled the most back then thrived in PBL. They, you know, they're, they kind of let, feed, let feedback for each other afterwards. And these students that I'm thinking of, their group said, she led the team. Like we would not have done as well without her, that kind of thing. And so it was really, really nice to see that students who had struggled with interacting with others really took over. I might be misremembering this, but I feel like in your post-fellowship reporting, you said those same students were students who might have barely passed your class. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of that is, you know, maybe I taught them three years ago and they hadn't worked on, you know, sure, some other sure. thing. So, um, but yeah, it was students who barely passed, who led their team to an A um, and did amazing work. We've talked about why you applied and then the outcome. So let's talk, let's fill in the middle a little bit. So Absolutely. what did you decide to do with your $1,000 grant? 
about 600 of that money of the dollars were spent on the trainings themselves. So I did two trainings, one that explained basics of project-based learning. Um, and so and that was, was all, online. All, was online. all online. Yeah. And it was, um, that one was asynchronous, which I was really nervous about because I had done some other asynchronous things from, I won't mention those places, but uh, they weren't great, but it was amazing. It was so detailed and so well laid out. Um, and the instructors would leave like really specific feedback immediately. And then we did have a, a synchronous meeting at the end where we could kind of, um, you know, add everything together. So that was, that was nice. Um, and so then the second one I did was experiencing PBL as a student. So they had you design your own project. Um, and so that was helpful to see what are some things that my students might struggle with. You know, if I'm going through this process and I hit a roadblock, that's a roadblock they're probably going to hit. Um, so that was a really, really nice thing to do. And then the rest I spent on books or um, other resources for the unit. I decided to do kind of a nature, largely food-based unit, although some of it was like climate change or deforestation because Pacific Northwest, that's a big thing here. Um, but a lot of it was like companion planting, um, hydroponics, community gardens, things like that. One of the biggest issues that our students say that they are worried about right now are climate change, sustainable food, that kind of thing. So I picked that unit, bought a bunch of books for them as resources some videos to engage them. Um, and so that's how I spent the money and printed these amazing infographics that they came up with um, as part of their assessment. So, and that's one thing that's different from our fellowship grant, our summer fellowship grants, is that you can use the money for implementation and mm-hmm. for resources. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that's what you did. Okay. So then you started this, this PBL project. You have mm-hmm. these students come in who've not been in school for a year and a half, and you work through seven elements of project-based learning. And the end result was what? So they did two things um, with their with their team. So there were basically like four people in a team. They all had to create an infographic together. So the community garden group created one infographic between the four of them. And then they had an option um, after that for the bigger assignment to either do a podcast with another team member in their group or all four of them, but it needed to be more than one person. Cause as you know, a podcast is like a conversation um, or if they needed to do the individual option, either as a preference, because I did want to recognize that some of them might feel overwhelmed by the interactions or as a requirement, because maybe they had to be absent because we are still in a pandemic, they could do a Ted talk. Um, so they had kind of an option for a speaking product, whether it was the podcast or the Ted talk. So we've talked about some of the differences in the summer fellowship and the innovation circle, mm-hmm. but one of the main thing that differentiates the two is the collaborative time with peers. Yes. Um, so you pursued your project-based learning SEL work in the summers, but then you also in the fall came back and once a month met mm-hmm. with a cohort of Fund for Teachers fellows also in this same type of um, pursuit. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that, what, what that was like? Yeah, so SEL was only one subgroup. So I know there were other circles, but mine was all focused on SEL, but no one else did project-based learning. So we all were coming at it from different angles and different um, activities, which was really nice because as any teacher knows, the best way to learn is to talk to other teachers and kind of see what they do. Um, So it was amazing to be able to bounce my ideas off of people. Um, I actually totally, completely stole the TED Talk idea from one of my group members because he was doing TED Talks. And I thought, oh, that's what I need for the students who are absent. Like, you know, they can't work with podcasts. What am I going to do? I was like stuck on that. And he mentioned he was doing TED Talks as a thing. And I was like, oh, yes, I'm taking that. Um, So just, you know, having inspiration from them and hearing about their 
successes and things that didn't go so well. Um, one of the people in my group, she um, tried to do kind of like an online self-paced kind of thing that she said the students did like, but she didn't get to interact with them as much. And that's not something she had predicted um, because, you know, they were mostly focused on the screen. And so while it had benefits, you know, and so that helped me to be like, okay, how can I remove them from the screen sometimes? Um, so it was really nice to be able to talk with other educators that are passionate and um, focused on the same things that I am. That was really helpful. We did a podcast with someone who was in the arts circle mm -hmm. and she said it was refreshing to just, it made me think about it, how um, you could kind of pivot. And if something didn't work, that that was okay. And mm -hmm. that was part of it. And um, she said it was so refreshing to be able to come into this innovation circle and not have it, a project planned at the end necessarily mm -hmm. and to be able to listen and learn from different teachers and then I prefer the word harvest than yes, yes, there you go. <laughs> feel, but, but think, you know, I can do that with my students too. So mm -hmm. it became a, she said it became a forum really for idea sharing and being authentic and humble enough to say this really flopped, or this could have been better with, we've really struggled with trying to find a way to, to connect our 9,000 fellows over the mm -hmm, past 20 years. Mm -hmm because you all do such disparate things, it's, it's totally up to the fellow to pursue what they want to pursue and where they want to pursue it. And we have pre-K through 12 teachers right. and public private charter. And, and so these innovation circles have here that we piloted it. We think maybe this is, maybe we're onto something here that, that teachers can collaborate. And even though you work so hard during the day, our, our lead, uh, Liza Eaton, who said, you must talk to Marcy Addy, oh. who has done amazing <laughs> work. Perfect. She said they would come, people would come so tired and they would actually say that they were energized at the end of meeting. Oh yeah. I was going to say that. It's like after a long day, you know, I'm on the Pacific coast. So for me, it was like literally right after work that I'd have the meeting. And so I'd have to like come home and try to like get set up. And, you know, there's always that like, oh, do I No, Yeah. Yeah. It's good for me. And then like you get into it and you're so inspired. I would always, like, after the meeting, I'd always go and talk to my husband and be like, oh, you know, we talked about this and this. And, you know, he was so happy for me that I had some sort of inspiration <laughs> in this like pandemic, very difficult time. Um, and so I'm so grateful for that. Every time I logged in, it was, it was amazing. As I said, this was a pilot program mm -hmm. with your, with your cohort and we've decided to, to do it again. How would you encourage teachers to think differently about this fellowship than than the first? There, there is still a proposal, and there's a template that you, that one works through, mm -hmm. but it, it's a little different mindset. So, how would you suggest approaching it? What you pointed out before about like a lot of the funds and things can go into the actual implementation of it—that it's not just the learning experience, which was really helpful for me because in the past, like. Um, some of this, like the ones I had done with the 2019 and the book club, luckily our PTO did um, fund the books for that book club, but I didn't have it originally. So thinking about like, what's something I want to do that might require some resources that maybe my school can't take care of. Um, and for me, it was a, a lot about like, what's some training, like not, not, not a tra traveling kind of experience with some training that I've always wanted as a teacher, but that maybe my district just doesn't offer. Um, and so thinking more about it as a training professional development implementation than necessarily the same sort of like inspiration that comes from traveling and hands-on. Um, you know, you could combine those potentially with the thousand, but I focused more on the, what, what was I lacking as far as the training was concerned? Excellent. That makes perfect sense. And then for the teachers who all of you are working under such demanding circumstances and all come home tired and depleted and then still have work to do, how would you 
encourage those teachers to push on and apply for this grant? Again, I did it for myself. Sometimes we do a lot of things for our students, but when I do things for myself, my students benefit from that. And so kind of shifting the focus from it's work and it's for my students and it's for something else, shifting that to being, this is for me. Like I care about this and I've been wanting to learn this and oh my gosh, here's this amazing organization that's going to pay for it and give me money for materials. Like take care of yourself, do the thing that inspires you and set that goal and meet it. I think that that's the best thing they can do. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org slash blog, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to reach an engaged audience of educators, share your event or product in this podcast by becoming a sponsor. Connect with listeners as they tune in to be inspired by the groundbreaking work our fellows are accomplishing individually and in the classroom. Contact info at fundforteachers.org for more information. And finally, thank you to Fund for Teachers fellow Marcy Addy for talking to us about her two fellowships and experiences in a Fund for Teachers Innovation Circle. If you are a Fund for Teachers fellow interested in joining a 2022 Innovation Circle around the topics of student self-awareness, learning partnerships, student agency, or student civic engagement, click the apply button on our website at fundforteachers.org. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today on Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning. Keep learning.